Thanks for coming back. Thanks for the new faces. We're going to continue um, on in our topic, love, justice, and hope. Uh, for those uh, that we didn't have a chance to have um, conversation or meet yesterday, I'm uh, Professor Stanley Talbert. I teach religion here at Pepperdine University, and I'm very grateful. Uh, we had a conversation because of the rain, uh, but this is um, the Queen, Bernice Pitts. Would you just wave your hand? Can we give her a warm welcome? And we're going to hear from her later, and she's very um, significant. Uh, her and her husband, uh, Carol Pitts, were um, some of the first African-Americans to attend Pepperdine University. And um, he wrote a thesis on the Church of Christ and the civil rights movements here at Pepperdine University. And Sister Pitts brought the thesis that she typed. And so I can't wait to hear more about that, right? And so we're just so grateful. I usually don't tell people's ages, but she wants everyone to know. Uh, do you want to tell them how old you are? <laughs> I'll be 95 in two weeks. Yeah, 95. So we have some history in the room. And there, um, I'm the minister at Normandy Church of Christ, uh, where uh, Brother Pitts and Sister Pitts have labored um, for so long. And this is a good way for me to bring both of those worlds together. And Normandy Church of Christ uh, was Southwest Church of Christ. And... Uh, Pepperdine, George Pepperdine was an elder at that church, so there's a lot of history in the room today. So let's uh, jump right back into it. We were in the letter um, from a Birmingham jail written by uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and we were discussing his personalist theology that basically um, everyone is endowed with personhood um, because we're created in the image of God. Segregation distorts that personhood. Um, there is no such thing as just segregation. There are power dynamics. This is why segregation and separation are different. Segregation indicates uh, a segregator, right? One who has the power to segregate, and then you have those who are segregated against. So from a theological and a biblical perspective, uh, King uh, would let us know that whenever we have um, too much sense of ourselves, right, um, an arrogance or a lack of humility, then this distorts how God made us to be. Or if we think too lowly of ourselves because of the laws and the ways that the world has been constructed around us, then that's also against um, who God created us to be. So we don't need to have low self-esteem um, and we don't need to have too much um, because that can produce um, arrogance and pride, right? And um, this other quote that we did not get to get to yesterday, hence segregation is not only politically, economically, and sociologically unsound, it is morally wrong and sinful. Paul Tillich has said that sin is separation, right? Is not segregation an existential expression of man's tragic separation, his awful estrangement, his terrible sinfulness? And so King would often draw off the German theologian Paul Tillich who had to uh, get out of Nazi Germany and taught at Columbia University uh, um, and I believe Chicago and Union, uh, but he was a profound theologian. And thinking about sin as separation, that's probably something we've heard for a long time, right? So I love how King applies this theologically to segregation uh, because what segregation did and does, because we talked about the new forms of segregation in the 21st century, what it does is, number one, it separates us from God. 
It separates us from God. Um, and then it separates us, it literally separates us from each other, right? And so this is how King is thinking about this because we can talk about, you know, what are the um, economic effects of segregation? We can talk about the sociological and the political effects. And usually that's where the conversation um, starts and stops, especially when we talk about the sin of racism or other injustices. We think politically, right? We think economically, we think sociologically, but what about theologically? What about religiously, right? One of the claims that we made yesterday was it shouldn't take a law to, to make us act right as Christians. We, sh we should set the standard, right? Um, and you can legislate laws, but you can't really legislate um, human behavior. You can't re legislate spirituality, right? And so um, we can't really depend on laws and policies. We do need them, but we can't depend on them to affect a change in our world, right? So let's move forward. I want to go to some more sources because we're talking about this type of radical love, agape, in the context, not, um, you know, in a secluded area, but a, a love that radically challenged and faced violence, a love uh, that had to encounter your home being bombed, a love that had to encounter, um, you know, letters and, you know, being spied on, all of those different things. So, you know, how is it that King talked about love and embodied love and embodied love in the movement when there was so much violence and hatred around him? One of his sources um, was uh, Niebuhr, and we're going to go to his other source, which is uh, Gandhi. Okay, I'm going to show us how he thought about um, agape, this disinterested love, this sacrificial love, and connection uh, to um, some of the ways that Gandhi um, talked and thought about love. How many of you have heard of uh, Ronald Niebuhr? All right. uh, Ronald uh, Niebuhr was a theologian, one of America's greatest theologians. And some of you may know um, something that Niebuhr said, uh, but didn't know that it was Niebuhr. Uh, you know the serenity prayer? All right, that, that comes from Ronald Niebuhr. Okay, so he was a great preacher, he was a teacher, and um, he was a theologian as well. And King says, as Ronald uh, Niebuhr has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. Groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. What is Niebuhr uh, telling us, especially immoral man and immoral society? Uh, that's a t uh, text that was groundbreaking uh, Within the field of theology, I believe he wrote it in 1932. I put it right there. Yeah. So basically, you um, Niebuhr draws on Augustine um, in thinking about love, and we don't want to just group, you know, love and hate in just one category, right? So if we go back to yesterday, we talk about, um, you know, systems, and then we talked about individual responsibility. Y'all remember that conversation? And what Niebuhr was trying to explain was that individual love is different from group love, and group love is different from national love. Individual hate is different from group hate, which is different from national hate. And... The higher up you go in terms of the number of people, uh, the more impact or effect the love or the hate has. 
okay? So for an example, um, you might have a love for your spouse, okay? Now that type of individual love, that sacrificial love, might look a little different uh, with your group or your church group, right? So you might be willing to sacrifice your life for, you know, your spouse. So I'm like, no, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> but you might not be willing to do so for some of your church members or your co-workers. Right? Okay. okay. So really um, what Niebuhr was saying is that love on the individual level, sacrificial level is different on the group level. And then you have a different type of national love, okay, where you might make sacrifices for the nation. You see this a lot with soldiers, and this is some of the examples that Niebuhr would use. But Niebuhr, he made the claim that you can't have agape disinterested love on the highest level, which would be on the national level. Now, when it comes to hate or violence, um, what Niebuhr would say is that the effects of the hate or the violence uh, becomes larger when it is associated with a national group. So we can think you, there might be an individual fight, okay? Two people might get hurt, okay? Then you take that to a group level, okay, then there's more violence. But then you take it to a national level, and then what? War, right? And so Niebuhr really wanted to keep track of that, so... The question that he's asking as a, an ethicist is, how can you be a moral person, right, in an immoral world? So sometimes a moral person might have to make decisions that look immoral, right? So what does it mean for a nation to go to war? I, I know that uh, many of you might teach uh, children um, or the youth at your church uh, not to fight, Right? But then you might support war, right? So Niebuhr was really uh, bringing out, he's a Christian realist, okay? And here are some of the quotes that you um, get from Niebuhr. The social peace upon which the nation insists and evidently incorporates social injustice, which can only be eliminated by disturbing the peace. And the same injustice makes for international conflict, so what is uh, Niebuhr's um, saying here? It's, it's pretty similar to Pax Romana. You remember when we talked about Pax Romana yesterday, the peace of Rome? Um, in the New Testament, we see this ideology, this ruling ideology, the peace of Rome. But then you ask the question, well, how was um, Rome formed in the first place? Right? You can look historically um, at the violence, uh, the enslavement, and the brutality that it took. So it started violently and then it wants to perpetuate itself as a peaceful nation. Even the myth of um, uh, Remus and Romulus, right, is, it starts with violence, a brother killing another brother, right? <laughs> and um, basically what Niebuhr is saying here is that if you want to have social peace in a nation, then in many ways that depends on the injustice um, globally, right, in some particular ways. So he's really... He's really uh, getting into what it means to have peace, that it, having peace is not peaceful, right, for someone else. And that's the constant challenge. And Really what, what King wanted is a beloved community that was not only predicated on nation states, but on the kingdom of God. 
So now I don't only see my brothers and sisters in the United States, but I see my brothers and sisters in Vietnam, which is why it is just tragically problematic for me to go to war because I have brothers and sisters in Vietnam. So it's a worldwide global vision of a beloved community. From the perspective of society, the highest moral ideal is justice. Okay, Niebuhr is saying you can't get agape on the um, highest moral ideal from a societal perspective, but you can get justice. So basically, he doubts that nations can really love with the love of Christ. Uh, but you can get to a semblance of it through what? Justice. And this is why you might hear uh, that quote, um, justice is what love look like, looks like in public. Okay, justice is what love look like, looks like in public. Because, I mean, if you think about it, unselfishness and agape, you really can't run a nation being unselfish. You can't. Categorically. I don't think you can, can win on a, a, a ticket by being unselfish, can you? You have to give. You have to give money first of all. You have to run a campaign. There is not enough imagination in any social group to render it amenable to the influence of pure love, right? So this is what he says: justice is what love looks like in public. And then, in the children of light and the children of darkness, a man's capacity for justice makes. Democracy, what? Possible. But man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. So really what Niebuhr is doing is to get into the psychology and the mindset of, you know, how groups tend to be. Democracy is possible, right? We have the capacity, but it's our selfishness. It's our greed. What Niebuhr and also Augustine, what they were really getting at is disinterested love. Can you love God without something in return? Can you love your neighbor without something in return? Right? And Niebuhr says, maybe on an individual level, but not on a social um, group level or not on a national level. Now, the reason I took some time to set that up is because King is going to offer something different. How many of y'all have heard of Gandhi? <laughs> They're laughing at you. So um, King was also drawing on um, some of these concepts um, whenever he talked about love, especially in relation to uh, the movement, Satyagraha, which is truth force or love force. Okay, so this is very central uh, to Gandhi. Um, they were uh, standing up to the British Empire they used what they had. It was, it was the truth force, a love force. That's important because we're thinking about agape from the Christian tradition um, with uh, this concept of truth force or love force. The, the prefix means truth, agape is force. Now this was in King's Palm Sunday sermon on Gandhi in 1959. And you can find this on the internet, just ask Google, or they, they have the AI now, just say, hey, pull up that King sermon. 
Now, listen to what he says, because what King says about Gandhi uh, contradicts what uh, Niebuhr presents in more men and in moral society. Gandhi was probably the first person in history to lift the love ethic of Jesus above mere interaction between individuals to a powerful and effective social force on a large scale. Uh, do you see when we juxtapose King, what King is saying about Gandhi, how different, as radically different from what Niebuhr said, right? Niebuhr says, no, you can't get that on a social level. You can't get that on a national level. But King says he was probably the first person in history to lift the love ethic of Jesus above mere interaction between individuals to a powerful and effective social force on a large scale. Love for Gandhi was a potent instrument for social and collective transformation. That's powerful for someone who's not a Christian, right? Um, and that's a lesson that we can take as Christians. So this is very important because we're not talking about individual love exclusively, okay? We're not just talking about loving one neighbor. We're talking about love as a force, love as a social and collective instrument for transformation, right? What does that look like? Justice is what love looks like and what in public. So a lot of times we can, let me just scroll up really quickly. Sometimes we can navigate or we could rather ignore the national hate our national violence if we exclusively focus on individual love or individual agape. I don't have to really worry about what's taking place in our world. Um, I love my neighbors. I love the people that go to my church. I, I love my family, right? Individualistic. So that's important. You, we, we can't talk about national love and using love as a, you know, a force for social change if we don't love the people in our lives, right? But again, it's both and. Um, Jesus cared about the people who were being oppressed and mistreated and violently misused in the context of the Roman Empire. So the love of Jesus was not just between um, their, um, individuals, but it was a love for people um, socially, right? So you have the individual and then you have social. And then we would like for us to consider how King learns from Niebuhr, right? How King learns from Gandhi, and then how he implements um, love within this social movement that we call the civil rights movement. I can't wait to hear just a little bit from uh, Sister Pitts because uh, Minister Carol Pitts um, what, and Sister Pitts, uh, they were in close proximity and friends and organizing in some ways with attorney Fred Gray, uh, who was the attorney for Dr. King and Rosa Parks. Um, as a matter of fact, Fred Gray wrote the bylaws for the Normandy Church of Christ. So we're in, we're in good hands. <laughs> 
one way to think about how King used and thought about love, he thought about it as a weapon. Okay, And so you'll hear King using militaristic language, but there's a substitution, a radical substitution um, with weapons that harm and kill with the weapon of love, right, that brings life and heals. Okay? So whenever you get a chance to read King's writings again, look for that militaristic language, but he's substituting is a radical substitution between a weapons that harm and kill and the weapon of love. Okay. So whenever he talked about, you know, um, organizing, I think this is a very important uh, for us to look back at uh, these principles, especially in this day and time, because some uh, groups uh, tend to, you know, a protest, but there's no organization or there's no demands. There's no clear idea of what we want. And love is not in the center, right? So first, it's not a method for cowards. It does resist. So if uh, people call King a pacifist, it's not necessarily true or correct. Um, again, he's using the language, militaristic language, but substituting the, the weapons, Okay does not seek to defeat or humiliate the opponent, but to win his her friendship and understanding toward redemption, um, reconciliation, and creation of the beloved community. So when you start with love, right, you, you're going to act in love, and you're going to have a, a vision for love. Okay, so you start in love, act in love, and have a vision for love. So love is at the center for the organization in protests in the first place. You're not trying to defeat or humiliate your opponent, but you're trying to create friendship. All right, so again, going back to Niebuhr, going back to Augustine, um, thinking about friendship, loving your neighbor as yourself, right? It's toward redemption, toward reconciliation. And again, he has this idea of the what beloved community. The attack is directed against the forces of evil rather than against persons who happen to be doing this evil. Again, this is why it's very important for us to understand the distinction uh, between um, individuals, right, and systems, right, principalities and power that individuals participate in. Right? So, um, number four, a willingness to accept suffering without retaliation, to accept blows from the opponent without striking back. Now, this one is kind of debated. It's like, if you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. No, okay, okay. Um, but really what we see is... Um, um, I believe the term is angeria in the New Testament. And basically, when you read um, in the Gospels, if a Roman soldier compels you to, you know, take their luggage for one mile, then you do what? You go two. Yeah. So we have that saying to go at the extra mile. Or if, uh, you know, they slap you on this side. Then. Right? Sometimes people take that as... Um, a critique of the meekness of the Christian tradition. There's a writer, um, New Testament scholar, uh, Dr. O'Berry Hendricks, who actually um, interprets those sayings in a different way. So basically, if you are an oppressed group, you don't have any of those weapons to fight back. And you really don't have a lot of options or decisions. One thing that you can hold, one thing that you can affirm is your own dignity. 
And so if they ask you to take it one mile, the law is one mile, say, I'm strong enough, I can take it for two. Or you think about a boxer, okay, you hit me over here, I can take this side as well. So I love that interpretation because it restores a sense of dignity, right? Uh, when I can't fight back, I can fight for my humanity. So I think we see that in, um, in these steps as well. Number five, avoids not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of spirit. At the center of nonviolence stands the principle of love. Nonviolence by itself is violent. If love is not at the center of nonviolence, then that's violent. And the reason I say that is because if you have a, a violent system, okay, and you want individuals who are being harmed by that violent system to just comply, then they're living in violence, okay? So if you say, no, don't be nonviolent, don't say anything, don't do anything, that's violent because there is a situation that's taking place. But when love is at the center of nonviolence, now we have a telos, we have a goal. We, we have something to begin with, we have a medium for a way of acting, and then we have a picture of the beloved community that we want um, to have at the end of this, right? It's based on the conviction that the universe is on the side of justice. That's really where we see the hope, right? Because, you know, I, I would be very fearful if I was king experiencing everything that he went through and the others in that time, if I didn't believe in God and, that, and if I didn't believe that the universe bends towards justice, that if, if all of this was not within the providence of God, Right? And so we can see the aspects of love and see the aspects of justice, that the justice is what love looks like in public. Let's not talk about love if there is no justice, okay, because that's violent. And then um, having um, this conviction that the universe is on the side of justice. That's what animates us and inspires us to love because we know that God is the God of justice. I'm going to... Um, I'm going to play this short video of Cain talking about love, right? And um, before I do that, I just want to see if there are any questions of clarification, um, because after the video, I want to just um, invite Sister Pitts just to say a few words, questions or comments. Yeah, so what I'm hearing you ask is if you're in a system of violence, right? and that system is telling you to be quiet and just participate in that system, then um, the claim I was saying is that's violent, right? Um, so the question that I'm hearing you ask is how do we change that? Okay. That, that, that is. And um, let me just say, I think there are many visions of creative protests, right? So um, Eddie Glaude, who's at Princeton, he critiques movements for just doing exactly what King did. Because King wanted people to be creative, right? Um, and the reason I'm saying this is because you don't, we don't have to do the same things you know, to confront injustices. Everyone doesn't have to, to, to go on the street. Everyone doesn't have to make a Facebook post, right? It could be simply teaching, teaching a better way, right? Or using the gifts that God has uh, given you to um, you know, affect change. Right, so a uh, brother Pitts was a writer. So I think sometimes we just have a 
really uh, myopic view and vision of what that could look like. Any other questions or comments? Thank you. Yes. Absolutely. 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 And that, can I come in here just because I want to give us a pit some time? I thank you for that answer. I think it's prayer, uh, but we don't stop with prayer, right? We see Jesus was praying, but Jesus was also in the temple, you know, when people were being exploited. That's why he overturned the money changers because the Roman government was overtaxing them by 99%. And then there was exploitation with the chief priests, uh, priestly aristocracy also taking their cut. And so Jesus turned over the tables. In the Roman Empire, uh, there was not enough bread for people to have on a daily basis. So what did Jesus do? Jesus fed them and gave them bread. There was not enough medical care, so Jesus healed. And so prayer um, should push us. Again, that's um, second-order theology, um, but it shouldn't stop there. Prayer should animate, you know, the, uh, the praxis. Amen, somebody? Can I get a... All right, all right, all right. Now, I was going to show this video. Um, this is Minister Carol Pitts, who was... Um, one of the uh, first African-American instructors in the religion department at Pepperdine University. And his wife, uh, Sister Pitts, is here with us. And I asked her just to share a little bit about um, the thesis. You have the thesis. I said, oh, no, we left the thesis. He said, I didn't forget. <laughs> this is his thesis entitled uh, Church and Civil Rights. And Sister Pitts typed all of it. So can we give Sister Pitts a round of applause? He has a lot of faith. <laughs> and um, I am um, a widow for 36 years. And I've been living alone uh, in my house for 58 years. And um, I'm an only child. So I don't have sisters and brothers to complain to fight with and everything. And since I became the age that I am, I'm forgetting everything and, and everybody faces and everything, but I'm still here. And um, I have had a, a, a great life, Christian life. Had my husband for 40 years and um, I've been in Normandy, Church of Christ. This is our 60th year. We celebrate our 60th year this year. And, uh, and I'm still able to move around. <laughs> and I'm so happy about that. I thank the Lord every day for every day he's given me on this earth. Um, the, <laughs> the time that my husband was um, writing his thesis, and he finished it. He, we went all the way to um, Nevada, Las Vegas, so that we could get away from everything. So I could type the the, the thesis on a, the um, not the electric typewriter <laughs> on the regular typewriter. And uh, I enjoyed doing it, but I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> I typed the whole thing, but I don't remember anything about it now. But um, I was happy to do it, and and he was happy that I 
could do it. So um, my husband and I were married 40 years before he left me. And um, I have been uh, alone 36 years. He's been gone. And um, I've been in Normandy. This would be our 60th year. And uh, my husband was the minister there 24 years. And I guess I could tell you that I didn't want a minister as a husband. When I was a child, I said, I do not want to have a minister as a husband. Because I would see that uh, when we had church meetings, and uh, I never got to meet the, the, uh, the minister's wife, you know. She never would be with him. And uh, I remember, uh, if you, any of you know uh, R.N. Hogan, he used to come and do meetings for us. And, but I never got to meet Sister Hogan until I came to California. <laughs> I came to California first, you know. And so I said, I surely don't want to be a minister's wife. And, uh, and I said, and I will not marry a minister. But, you know, I didn't marry one, but he became one anyway. And I, I uh, when, when he, when we were in, we were in um, high school together, and then he was um, drafted out of high school into the Navy. And when I finished high school, um, I told my mother that I don't think she need to go into college. <laughs> I didn't want to go to college. I didn't see. I didn't see anything better for it, you know, for, for black people. So I just said, uh, "High school's enough for me." And my mother said, "Oh yes, you're going to college. You're going to a Christian college." <laughs> oh, I am. <laughs> so she sent me out here. I, I am from Oklahoma, but so she sent me out here to go to Pepperdine. But uh, I didn't go. I didn't want to stay out here by myself. I'm an only child. And so she sent me out here to go, but I didn't go. But I was afraid to let her know that I didn't, hadn't gone. And so, and I know I needed to do something. I needed to go back home or something. You know. I got a job. So I could make my fare to go back to Oklahoma which I did. She was shocked. What happened? You're not in Pepperdine? No, I'm not in Pepperdine. Well, you just write Pepperdine and see when is the next entrance date. We're going to take you out there and get you registered and so you can <laughs> get an education, Christian education. So they brought me back. They brought me out here to go. So I went. And, and my, my husband was in the Navy. And so when he got out of the Navy, he decided he'd come to California and go to Pepperdine, too, which was good. So, we, um, so he did that. And when, when he 
when he um, when he got here, uh, he he checked into Pepperdine, but then we decided we wanted to get married, and my mother said, "Married? Well, married or not, you're finishing school. I had two years to go." So anyway, we went on and got married, and uh, my my husband had to take out of school and get a job. I mean, somebody had to work, make the money. I'm in school. <laughs> so anyway, uh, he got a job and that, so that I could finish my schooling. And then when I got out of school, I got a job, and then he checked in school. So it worked out. And in, and then the whole thing, being a being a minister's wife, it was turned out to be nice. <laughs> but I spent spent about the first year trying to get him to, to uh, go back to business administration. That's what he's supposed to be. <laughs> but I repented of that and and I stopped complaining about it and I just told him that forgive me for not wanting you to be what you and then it it uh, it worked out nice. <laughs> That's just so precious, isn't it? That's beautiful. That's history. We have living history. And um, thank you for bringing the thesis. This thesis is also in Pepperdine Libraries. I see some of our Pepperdine Library crew in, in, the, in the room. Um, but the reason this is so significant is because um, Minister Pitts, what he was doing is groundbreaking work. And he was challenging our tradition, the Churches of Christ. In the uh, table of contents, you will see Abilene, Harding, Freed Hardman, Pepperdine. And he was just analyzing, you know, what, what are our institutions doing? What are our churches doing? He went and um, he cataloged all of the um, conferences and lectures. He was like, where have we talked about race? And it's all in here. And he did this while being a student here at Pepperdine and doing ministry in Los Angeles. Amen. So I think this is a good way to end it. Uh, can we give uh, Pitts one more round of applause and thank her for making it on this rainy day? All right. And thank you all. Yes.